Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. May God bless the reading of his word. Father God, we just pray, Lord, that as we open up our minds to the word, that you open up our eyes and our hearts as well. Father, what an appropriate text for what has happened this week and what is happening in the lives of so many, Father. Lord, we think of Mila, but we also think of the others here who have been going through cancers and other pains as well. Some people here are in struggles and lifelong uh, addictions and sins, Father, that they're trying to get out of, Father. God, I pray right now that you speak hope and rest to them uh, through this passage and that they will fill your fiery presence with them today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Reading through Scripture, it is absolutely clear that God calls His people to fight. It's clear that God expects His people to fight. Christians are to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, and to fight the good fight of faith. You read that in 1 Timothy. They are to put on the full armor of God and resist the devil, according to Ephesians 6. But not just resist the devil, but resist him firm in the faith. Christians must be steadfast and movable and strong. How appropriate is it then to tell someone who's in the midst of struggle to keep fighting? But here's the question. What do we do when we're too weak to fight? What happens when the torrential storms of suffering come crashing in and threaten to blow us over? When we find that we're not so steadfast and immovable as we thought we were? To whom do we look when our fighting just does not seem to be enough? When the pain is too deep? When all seems lost? When the health report weakens our knees? When fear buckles our courage? When anxiety sucker punches us in the middle of the night? When your life becomes a nightmare, to whom do you look? When there seems to be no escape from worry or heartache. It's not just suffering, is it? It's not just suffering. There's also the struggle with sin. What about daily struggles with things like sin and temptation and battling for godliness? What hope do we have that we can Stand firm against lifelong habits and addictions and and bad practices and, and temptations over and over and over again. Sometimes knowing that we are called to fight and that we must keep fighting is simply not enough. 
It's just simply not enough. We need more to lean on in the hospital room, in the living room, at the kitchen table, in the conference room, in the secret closet, in any other place that will become a battleground for faith. We just, we need more to lean on. If you lean on the message, just keep fighting, just keep fighting, you will run out. So what do we have? Truth be told, Christians sometimes speak an unbalanced message when they tell others who are struggling to just keep fighting. Absolutely true that the Bible wants us to fight, that the Bible calls us to fight, and yet the Bible also says that we are too weak to fight and win our own battles. Sometimes people find themselves reeling with confusion and frustration in the midst of suffering because they have not heard the full message of Scripture. The full message of Scripture is not just fight. The full message of Scripture is fight and be fought for. As we will learn from Exodus chapter 13 and 14, before believers raise a sword in the fight of faith, we must come to know and trust that our wise and good God wins glory as He fights for us. Before we are called to war, before we are called to battle, before we are called to put on the armor of God, before we're called to stand firm, we need to understand that there's a mighty warrior who is already doing all of those things for us and more. There's a God who goes to war on our behalf. There's a God who battles on our behalf. There's a God who dons armor even when He doesn't need armor. For your behalf. The Red Sea redemption being a paradigm of our salvation in Christ and our walk with the Lord has much to teach us as Christians in regard to the Lord's love and kingship over His people in the midst of their suffering and struggles. My friends, Exodus 13 and 14 is probably one of the most forgotten, underestimated, undermined, encouraging passages in all of the Bible for those of you that are going through hardship and struggle. We're going to look at those three things. Number one, God is wise. Number two, God wins glory. And number three, God fights for His people. So number one, God is wise. Having given His people instructions for the Passover and future memorials by which His people will remember their redemption, God began to lead His people out of Egypt. In verses 17 and 18, uh, we read this of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around. In other words, God led them by a detour, by the way of the wilderness through the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now notice that God could have led his people straight through Philistia. If you don't know your Bible geography, Philistia is right there. It would have taken possibly, probably up to two or three weeks to get to the promised land. It's a quick route. Just, you know, a short little, little sidetrack through Philistia and then boom, they're there, right? Quick and easy business. Go from slaves to landowners in just a matter of weeks. It's great. It's easy, isn't it? It's quick. It's convenient. But notice that God doesn't do that. God knows what His people need. God knows what's best for His people. He knows that His people were not ready to fight. 
they eventually would need to fight for the promised land. That was his plan from the beginning, that when they get into the promised land, they will take up sword, they will take up shield, they'll put on their helmets, and they will go to war, but not yet. They're not ready for it. If they were to go to war before they came to know God intimately as their warrior, two things might happen. First, they might despair. War is frightening. It's terrifying. They might forget there's a God who loves them and who protects them at the first sight of bloodshed. They might tuck and run. Second, they might return back to Egypt. War is hard work. It makes you anxious. It leaves that sick feeling in your gut. There's just so much uneasiness and unknowns when it comes to war. Wouldn't it be easier to live in safety in Egypt even if safety in Egypt meant living as a slave? Surely being a slave would have been better than being a soldier on the battlefield. They might just turn back themselves. So God knowing this, Knowing that these reactions would be a possibility, God knew that his people should not go to war. They needed to see him as the mighty warrior. That being so, he doesn't just lead them away from premature war. He also led them away from a quick and strategic way out. To any strategist or general looking at this plan, God's plan and route out of out of Egypt is absolutely absurd. Foolish. Is it, I mean, he, he's bringing them to a place that absolutely has no retreat if Egypt were to come ready to kill them. Where were they, where were they to go? It's an absolutely indefensible position. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to build fortresses. No refuge. No embattlements. And yet, what we find as we begin reading the passage is the foolishness of God is infinitely wiser than the wisdom of men. The foolishness of God and the absurd, nonsensical routes that he chooses is infinitely wiser than any strategist or general could ever come up with. God knew what they needed. They needed to be brought to a place that was indefensible so that they would see that it is Yahweh who is their defense. They needed to be brought to a place that had no fortresses, no refuge, because they needed to realize that God is their refuge. They needed to be brought to a place where they could not turn back if they wanted to. They could not go back, but they must go forward in faith. It would be on the shores of the Red Sea that God would show his people who he really is. What is more... God in His grace did not merely lead His people blind and alone down some ridiculous path. It'd be one thing if you said, we're going to go this way and I'm not going to give you any kind of hope that I know what I'm doing. Okay? It'd be one thing. But He doesn't do that. Quite the contrary, He gave His people all kinds of evidence that He is in sovereign control, that He is the one who is leading the way, and He knows what He's doing. He gives them two things. He gives them His promise and His presence. We see this particularly in verses 19 through 20. First, God made his promise apparent. Look at verse 19 and 20. Moses took the bones of Joshua, Joseph. Now this is 
absolutely bizarre that you were going to find hope from a dead body. <laughs> um, the, the number one signal and symbol and lighthouse of hope for the people of God at this moment that God knew what he was doing and would be faithful is a dead man's bones. That's our bizarre God. But he's probably the coolest God you will ever know because he can make dead things a symbol of hope. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now, before he died, Joseph's uh, proclamation is filled with faith in the promises of God. Specifically, he declared his faith that the Lord would lead his people to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It was because of God's Edenic promise, a, a, a plan to bring back Eden to his alienated people, that Joseph put his, his faith in God and said, hey, I will be dead for years. And I want you to bring my coffin, dig me up, carry me out, bury me again. By faith. I want you to rob my grave because of my faith in the Yahweh who keeps His promises. So as they're marching, after more than 400 years of Joseph's bones lying there, whenever God's direction seemed strange or foolish, all an Israelite needed to do was look to the bones of Joseph. I mean, didn't Joseph say 400 years before, God will do this? And when you see my bones, you march them out because that is God keeping his faithfulness. And well, here they are. Egypt is defeated. Israel is leaving out. And guess whose bones they're carrying? It's a symbol of God's faithful promises. Second, God gave a visible manifestation of his presence. Verses 21 and 22 tell us, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light that by night uh, that they might travel by day or by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before them, uh, from before the people. This is just the Old Testament's way of saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is exactly what we see happening. God's presence seen in the day. It's a big cloud. God is in the cloud. It's a mighty pillar. And they see it before them. At night, a big cloud turns into a big pillar of fire. They see it bright and shining. And over and over again, they see Joseph's bones, God's promise. They see the pillar, God's presence. And they are given hope and encouragement that God knows what He is doing. In the same way, God sometimes leads us, His people, into places we can scarcely understand why. His pit stops, His detours are nonsensical, strange, bizarre, questionable, and yet His seeming foolishness is actually His profound work in our lives. His path may lead to the ER. It may lead to the waiting room. It may lead to a family awkward, an awkward family meeting. It may lead to the lion's den. It may lead to a fiery furnace or to wherever else you will come to the end of your strength and self 
self-reliance. We can always know God will lead us to there. Wherever we will come to the end of our strength. He knows best concerning what we need. And what we're ready for. And most importantly, he knows that what we need is not the easiest road. He knows that we need whatever road will bring us to trust in him. Fully. Without a doubt. He doesn't lead you blindly through your suffering. And neither does he send you down the path alone. Saying, here's the path. It's strange. Go and I'll watch. No, he goes with us. He goes before us. He goes in us. For Israel, he displayed his promise through Joseph's bones and manifested his presence. And for us, that that fiery pillar by night, that glorious cloud by day, has now filled believers. God in us. Indwelling in us. God's Holy Spirit with us to do what? To keep his promise and to give us his presence so that we may know when we get into painful, weird, awkward, hurtful, situations our God is keeping his plan and promise to bring blessing to the world and bring us back to his presence all over again like it was in Eden his promises are never forgotten and you are never alone second we see God's glory not only did God's choice of route out of Egypt display his infinite wisdom, this route would also lead to his infinite glory. Beginning in verse 1, God revealed to Moses what he was about to do. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. I just want that to sink in for a second. First time God really speaks to Moses since they've left Egypt, and he's saying, hey, go back. Tells Moses to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath. I did my best I could in that pronunciation. If you could do it better, good job. Between Migdol and the sea and between Baal Zephon. It's a fun place. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Literally commanded them to go back. Return to this particular point in the Red Sea. He gave every great detail exactly where he wants them positioned. Where he wants them to sit. What city or village he wants them to sit in front of. And he wants them to understand that they are sitting between a rock and a hard place. Puts them there intentionally. They're heading out. If you look at any Exodus map, there's several of them out there. Any Exodus map, all of them have a U-turn. Because any Exodus map that follows the path of Scripture, they all turn back. Or can you just imagine, you're on your way out. You're on your way out, and then you get the word, hey, we're going back. It's one of the most vulnerable places. Literally, before the gate of Egypt and at the shores of the sea, God has backed His people into a corner. But why? My friends, you may feel like you've been backed into a corner by all kinds of suffering, problems. Here's what you can know when you read Scripture. God backs his people into corners intentionally so that he may get glory when he answers you. 
All throughout Scripture, God allows His people to come into impossible situations. Here, Israel is between Egypt and the Red Sea. Just, just between a wave and a rock. Later, in the book of Joshua, Israel would be outnumbered. And here's what it says. By a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots, literally looking at this mass army, ready just to collide with them head on and slaughter them. Still later in 1 Samuel 17, Israel would stand quivering as a nine-foot giant mocked their God. And then in 2 Kings 18 and 19, God sovereignly allowed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers to surround Jerusalem that who were bent on seeing it completely destroyed. He deliberately brought Hezekiah in that to the end of his financial strength, his military strength, his political strength. He had nothing but those 185,000 soldiers around him. Time and time again, God shows that it is not his people who are strong enough to fight. It is he who must do battle for them and he alone who gets the glory for their salvation. Now think of what would happen if this story didn't exist. If this never happened to Israel. Imagine what would happen had Israel's road out of Egypt been smooth and unchallenged. Then none of the nations, including Egypt and Israel, would have walked away with definitive evidence that Yahweh is God. No one would have seen Yahweh's work at power. He had to back them in the corner to show them that He is the God who owns not just the corner, but the room and whoever growls at His people. He's the God who is going to fight from the corner. He likes it that way. He likes it that way. Because then the world may see that He alone is God. God foretold that He would again harden Pharaoh's heart and He would again receive glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. God was setting the stage, as it were, upon which the world would see Him as the mighty Redeemer for who He is. Tom Schreiner, a commentator, says this, the salvation of Israel and the judgment of Egypt became the theater for God's glory. The place where His character and His name would be displayed for the world. God is literally setting the stage for this great redemptive act that's about to happen. He's setting the backdrop. He's putting up the props. He's moving the actors. He's telling them where to go, where to stand, giving them their cues and their place. Also that as the world watches, they will see the great director who works his redemption. The result would be the unquestionable truth that Yahweh is not only Lord of Israel, but Lord of all the earth. The Egyptians themselves, the enemies of God, the people who hated God, the people who worshiped false gods, would themselves come to say, Yahweh is Lord. What an amazing sight that would be. So here's the hope for us. God's backtracks and God's backpedals are not backtracking and backpedaling at all. It seems like a backtrack. It seems like a backpedal. But it's not backpedaling at all. They are God's intentionally wise movements that will result in His glory. After all, God's concern was not simply that the Israelites would go free. If you think the Exodus is all about setting Israel free, that is not the point of the Exodus. The point of the Exodus is God's global mission to show everyone that He alone is sovereign God. 
If you think God has saved you just to save you, no, He saved you to put you on display for the whole world to see. Look at what God does. He works so that people will know Him. People who do not know Him. People who do not worship Him will rise up and call Him King and Lord and that the earth will be blessed by the knowledge of Him. Had Israel's freedom been God's one and only focus if Setting them free and getting them out of Egypt had been his only, only primary objective. Then the Red Sea events, absolutely unnecessary. Absolutely unnecessary. Had God not taken this bizarre, confusing, foolish backtrack, then Israel and us, I think we can't, we can't stress this enough, we ourselves may not know something very important about God. Namely, that he's the God who keeps promise, who gives his presence and delivers his people to his own praise. Third, God fights for us. In verses 5-9, through Pharaoh and his servants changed their minds and set out to pursue and slaughter the people of Israel. 600 chosen chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, were sent out. This isn't Pharaoh picking and choosing his arsenal. This is Pharaoh unleashing the arsenal. You don't know what tanks were in ancient Israel there, or what chariots were in ancient Israel. They were tanks in battle, basically. This was the way that they demolished the enemy. And it's in essence to any bystander standing by that day, any, any old Egyptian man that was watching as these chariots were going out, here's what they saw. They saw Israel as the grass. And here goes Pharaoh as the mower. That's what it would have looked like. No one stood up to Egypt's power. If you're a history buff, then you know that even the Hittites, the closest superpower to the day, the Hittite Empire, could not stand against Pharaoh's armies. They got mowed down by his chariots. There were songs written about Pharaoh's wheels stained with blood. They have a reputation. They carried the same kind of reputation of glioblastomas and brain injuries. Car wrecks, final, fatal, terminal illnesses. Everybody knew that when it went out, it was over. And yet, we see that it's not really over, is it? It wasn't so definitive as it seemed. Verse 10 says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Now, anytime you're reading scripture, you see the word behold. The word behold insinuates surprise. It's shocking. It just, it wasn't expected. For the Israelites, at least. It wasn't expected. So they're, they're probably going about their business, setting up tents, whatever they're doing. And they look up and boom, there's the Egyptians. 600 chariots at least and more coming. Absolute card off guard. And this is seen in, in, the, in their uh, cry to Moses. Here's what it says. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in the wilderness. They didn't expect hardship, trial. 
they thought, like many of us do, who, who are in the modern day, I've been saved, I've been redeemed, it's smooth sailing from here. I got my get out of hell free card. So now I can just go and pass, keep passing go. Pay no rents, pay no fines, pay no bills. And God shows them real quickly that that's not the case. God did not redeem his people so that they would avoid trial and hardship. God redeemed his people so they would trust him in trial and hardship. He didn't save them to avoid enemies. He saved them so that they could trust him when their enemies surrounded them. My friends, you may be absolutely confused. Why in the world has this happened? I believed in Jesus. Surely, surely, God would give me this one. God would give me peace or God would give me uh, uh, silence or rest or financial security or medical health security or whatever else. Surely, now God would give me what I want. And God says, no. Because he didn't save you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and prosperous. He saved you so that you know that true health is trusting in him. True wisdom is trusting in him. True prosperity is having everything taken away from you and still having everything in God. That's why God saves us. Verse Peter 4. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. My friends, God's glory is revealed in this text. Moses answered the people and he said, fear not. Just the people are panicking i don't know if you've ever seen this um i i'm not a big hollywood fan as as far as like go watch moses movies okay they tend to cut it short i mean this is absolute sheer panic just put yourself into their place and some of you have been in their place with all these bad diagnoses and all these uh, incredibly painful and impossible situations you felt that panic you know that gut-riching what in the world are we going to do we're all doomed That's what they were experiencing. Moses doesn't shout on them. He doesn't slap their hand and said, shame on you. You should remember what God has done in the plague. He doesn't do any of that. I think Moses knew what God knows, that we are fickle people that go back and forth from faith to fear, faith to fear. It's just a part of the human experience, isn't it? Being fallen people who aren't perfect and don't see God physically. It's natural that we would jump from fear to faith. So in the midst of their panic, imagine how sweet these words would have sounded. They're just panicking, screaming, shouting, holding babies, hugging them tight, hiding possessions, trying to find anything to cover a sword or a spear or whatever. They're just panicking. The whole camp is in an uproar. And all of a sudden they come to Moses and everyone's silent to hear what he has to say. And here's what he says. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, 
you shall never see again. I don't think he shouted this part. I think he said it so softly that it just put such a profound impression on the people of God. Because this phrase that we're about to read has been repeated in Israel's big, amazing battles throughout the entire Old Testament. And something that we still hang on today. And here comes the still small voice of God through Moses when he says, The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. What are we going to do? What are we going to say? How are we even going to pray? Who are we going to turn to when the doctors finally say there's no other hope? Where are we going to go when the enemies come crashing in, when anxiety sits on your chest at night? Where are you going to, what are you going to do? Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. For the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Quite literally, Moses told them to stand and watch. <laughs> don't pack your things right now. Don't get all these swords ready. There's, we don't need any formations. No battle lines need to be drawn. We don't need the strategy board. We don't need the little pieces that we're going to see where the Egyptians are going to go. We don't need an outline of the landscape to see where the best place to take refuge. We don't need to do any of that. You need to stand and you need to be quiet and you need to watch. There will be a day that Israel will throw spears. There will be a day that Israel will unsheath swords and carry shields and put on breastplates and tighten belts and put on their sandals to run at the enemy and will shout and scream and battle. But not this day. There will be no shouting. There will be silence. There are just some battles that we are not equipped to fight. Technically, every battle we're not quite equipped to fight. There's just some times that the Lord doesn't doesn't fluff you up and say, you just need to keep fighting. There's sometimes that the Lord actually says, you can't fight, you won't fight, be still, be quiet and watch. Be still. Know that I am God. Be silent. And watch as I work my salvation. The Lord wants us to understand that He is the one that saves. My friends, if you look at the parallels between Red Sea redemption and the redemption at the cross, you will find that they are so close. So close. The Old Testament Red Sea is quite quite possibly one of the closest parallels to the cross that you will ever find. And one of the things that you'll see is that God calls His people to stand still Watch him fight and watch him get the glory. You can't battle sin, Satan, and death. You can't. Not on your own. You must have a warrior who fights those things for you before you ever raise your sword. Do you know God fights on your behalf? Now hearing their cries, 
God said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, the staff that symbolizes his power, God's power, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, over his 600 more chariots, and over all of his horsemen. He promises salvation and judgment. He promises that his people will go into the sea and be saved and that the Egyptians will go into the sea and will be doomed. It's interesting that oftentimes when you see God work in redemption, the very same means by which he saves his people, he judges the enemies of his people. It was by death that Israel was saved in Egypt. Literally the death of a Passover lamb. It was by death that Egypt was doomed. Here it's going to be the sea through which they enter in, that Israel would be saved. And it will be the sea by which Egypt will meet their doom. It's at the cross that Jesus saves sinners and crushes the snake's head. Salvation and judgment Over and over and over. Here come the people of God saved. There go the princes and kings of the world. Crushed. Saved. Broken. Built up. Ruined. And redeemed. That is God's redemptive covenant work. Now, moving on to verses 19 and 20. And friends, I know that we are running out of time. I just ask that you sit patiently and listen carefully because I I just quite frankly don't know what to cut out of the sermon. Verses 19 and 20, God gives an important demonstration. The angel of God who is standing in the pillar of cloud and who stands as a pillar of fire at night, guess where he goes? He moves. And he moves directly behind the people of God. They didn't need to build a fortress or a refuge. Why? Because God quite literally became their refuge. They didn't need to build a wall. Why? Because God is the wall. They didn't build defenses. Why? Because God is a defense. It's no mistake that the psalmist, for all generations forward, the sons of Korah would write, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. He moved exactly to where he needed his people needed him to be. And in all this, they're watching. Just put yourself into the people of God that day and watch as this pillar of cloud moves miraculously, amazingly behind you. And the only thing standing between you and these Egyptians is a cloud. But it's not the cloud that holds them back. It's who's in the cloud. It is God the Redeemer. Now, thanks to Hollywood, if I were to ask the average American who split the Red Sea, what do you think their answer would be? Who? Jonathan Heston. Yeah, most people would say that. <clears throat> most people, if they're smart, would say Moses, right? They couldn't be more wrong. 
It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Charlton Heston, as old as he may be. I don't even know if he's still alive. Um, however, the point of the whole passage in Exodus 13 and 14 is no man did anything that day. Moses raises his staff. That's it. If you want to know what part Moses played in splitting the Red Sea, he raised the stick. And it was a stick that God gave him. It wasn't even his own stick. He raises the stick and then it says, the Lord drove back the sea. Over and over you see the primary actor. Who's the primary actor? Not Moses, not the people of Israel, not even Pharaoh. It is God. God did this. God did that. God worked this. God moved behind the people of God. God split the sea. God crushed Pharaoh, throwing the horse and the rider into the sea over and over again. We're told in this amazing parallel to our own redemption that it is not us who redeems ourselves. It is God who redeems us. The mighty warrior is not you. We are more than conquerors. That is absolutely true. It says it in Scripture. But you got to read why we're more than conquerors. It's because of him who conquered. Scripture says in the New Testament about Satan that he'll soon be crushed under our feet. Well, that's interesting. Who's going to crush Satan? Well, we will. But why? Because he's already been crushed. We fight defeated enemies. Death is a toothless lion. Sin is reeling and careening as far as the east is from the west. Satan is counting down the days until he's chained and thrown into hell. They're defeated. They're broken. Smashed, bruised, bloodied. And one day they'll be dead. Why? Because God is the God who fights for us. Verses 23 through 25. God allowed the Egyptians to pursue Israel into the sea. So they get in, and I don't know if you pay attention to the details or not, but there's an adjective in verse 29 that the people of God walk over on what kind of ground? Dry ground. Now that means not wet, right? I mean, not muddy, right? So, so, you know, all these things about, about, you know, it being squishy ground. No, it's dry ground. And that's important because when we see the Egyptians coming in, what happens to their chariots? They get stuck. So somehow the very ground that was dry for Israel is wet and muddy and like sinking sand for Egyptians. They can't move. Now these battle-hearted, six-pack, bronze-plated warriors who have scowls on their face and ready to slaughter the first Israelite they see are now in the sea and they begin to panic. It's amazing. It's amazing. Anyone who served in the military before, there's one thing that you ne- you hardly ever see for the most part. And if, if I mean, it's very serious if you see it. It's a soldier in the middle of the battle panicking. Soldiers are trained not to panic, right? Soldiers are trained to keep their wits about them. Fight, fight, fight to the end. But here we see the highest trained military in the world, the killers, the professional assassins of Pharaoh, 600 of them and more screaming in fear. And the ones who dared to raise the sword to the Israelites now say, 
What? Let's get out of here. Let us flee from before Israel. Wait a second. You're the charioteers. They're the slaves. Flee from before who? Flee from before Israel. They're scared of Israel now. Why? For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. But it was too late. By the time they had recognized that, it was over. And the seas came crashing back down as they were. And it says, verse 28, not one of them remained. Means none of them floated. None of them swam. None of them got out just in time. They were completely crushed. God defeats every enemy of his people. And yes, we still deal with sickness and we still deal with pain and we still deal with sin and Satan and death in part. There is a day that we will watch those floodwaters come back over and all of those things will be gone. All those things will be gone. God will win and he will get the glory. Now let's look at the result. Verses 30 and 31 conclude. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord in his, and in His servant Moses. Two results. Number one, fear of the Lord. And number two, belief, faith. Now here's why fear of the Lord is important. Whatever you fear is what's powerful to you. Do you realize that? We're not... Afraid of things that have no power over us, right? How, how many people are afraid of bunnies, for example? Right? Okay. Nobody's afraid of bunnies or who's, who's afraid of, uh, well, nobody say frogs. I hear somebody saying frogs. That is a rational fear. God did use them as a plague. But the fact of the matter is, whatever we fear is what we give power to, right? Is what we, we seem powerful. Let's give you an example. Fear of man. If I fear what my buddy or my neighbor thinks about me, what, do, what am I saying? That he has some kind of power over me. Some kind of influence over me. What he thinks is most important. What he feels about me. His opinion of me. All that's weighing down and crushing and it's powerful over me, right? What about, what about fear of death? Yeah, that seems pretty powerful, doesn't it? Definitive. My friends, whatever you fear is what you give power to. The Israelites stopped fearing the Egyptians and now they fear the Lord. Why? Because he's more powerful. That's the result of seeing God's redemption at work. My friends, we have seen an even greater power than the Red Sea in the cross. Do you realize that? Everybody talks about, man, I would have loved to see that. My friends, you have seen it in Jesus. You saw what Moses just got a glimpse of at the Red Sea. The Red Sea will be nothing, small pebbles, and compared to the massive boulder that Jesus worked at the cross. You have seen it. Christ, Yahweh, in flesh, the great I Am, has crushed strong enemies like sin, Satan, and death, and He has given you reason to no longer fear them. Do not 
Fear them, lament them, sure, mourn them, sure, absolutely. Do not fear them. God sent His Son to die on the cross so that sin could be thrown as far as the east is from the west. Satan's head would be crushed and death itself would be killed. He was buried for three days and He rose again showing that He had done it. And now they're wasting away. They have, they have a, an expiration date. And we have three applications I'm going to end with. These are applications for me that I have found helpful this week. These are applications I hope Nick and Brittany will find helpful. These are applications I hope you will find helpful. Number one, do not be fooled by your eyes. Do not be fooled by your eyes. We often will find ourselves in circumstances that will leave us wondering what God is doing. It's just a normal part of a Christian life. You're going to find yourself in times that you just do not understand. You will find yourself in times of hopelessness and in despair. You will find yourself in times of seemingly foolishness on God's part. But the seemingly terrifying chariots that you see, the 600 strong, are actually helpless and harmless. The seemingly desperate situation that you are in will become a moment of victory in Christ. At some point. It may not be soon. It may not be now. It may not be in this lifetime. But it will happen. The moment that you seem crushed, defeated, broken, destroyed, broken down, you can know God turns those things into victory in the end. Do not be deceived by your eyes. Number two, do not forget God. The Israelites saw Pharaoh's army and despaired, and they started saying things like it would be better for us to go back to Egypt, or it would have been better if we had served in Egypt rather than die in the wilderness. My friends, sometimes our fear comes because we live in, in a made-up reality that there is no God. Despair, hopelessness, are all imaginary worlds that we live in in which there is no God. Whenever someone tells you there is no hope, what world do you live in? There's no good ending to this. What planet did you come from? Because all the Bible says there is. May not look like it, may not seem like it. Do not forget God. You're absolutely right. There is no hope without God. As it stands, there is a God. So we can have hope that God will heal Mila. We can have hope that even if it goes wrong and it doesn't turn out the way that we're praying for, that even after that, God is powerful and will work His promises. My friends, no one is beyond God. Jesus Christ took a dead girl's hand, touched it and said, Get up, little girl. And she ate and walked and that's what He promises to do with every little child that dies. And every believer that dies in faith. One day, the great Redeemer who will resurrect His people will grab them by the hands and will say, Telestai, wake up, get up. Wake up. Time to wake up. 
Whether it happens soon or not, I have no idea. But it will happen. Do not forget God. Third and finally, do not forget God's goal. God's goal stated throughout the book of Exodus was to show the whole world that He is Lord. That is His primary concern in life because that is the only life that there is, is that God is Lord. God must make it about Himself. Why? Because He's all that matters. If He points anyone to something else, if He says it's all about comfort, that's God, well then He's doing an injustice to us because He's pointing us to something that cannot give life. God must make it about Himself. God must make it about His glory because that is where life and peace and joy truly are. There's nothing outside of that. He must make it about Him. That's why He works us into these situations. That's why David had to stand before Goliath just just so for three days. Three days. God's people stand on the hillside assuming that Israel is going to be enslaved in Philistia again. Just so that they could hear these words. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands so that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that all the assembly will know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. All for that. The entire Red Sea moment was all for that one phrase. The Lord will fight for you. Whatever you're going through, your great champion, the son of David, has fought for you and he has won the victory and he is still fighting for you and he will win the victory. So whether you're seeing the eventual death of a loved one, your own eventual death, cancer, disease, sickness, hospital rooms, strugglings with sin and temptation, whatever it may be, I would call us as people who believe and trust in God and who fear the Lord to know that God is a mighty warrior. And when you come to the end of your strength, you can know you're just beginning to see His. Just beginning to see His. Let's pray. Father God, there is hope in Christ. He is our warrior. He fights for us. He loves us. And He will raise us up. Every single one of us may eventually die. Every single one of us will go through hardships. We'll face our pharaohs. We'll face our 600 chariots our 185,000 Assyrians. And on that day, Father, I pray that you give us faith to know that you, God, are the Lord who answers and that you're the God who fights for his people. If there's anyone in here that does not know Jesus, then they they do not know you as their fighter. So God, I pray if anyone in here does not know Jesus, that they will come and speak with elders and that they will pray with us, Lord, and come to know him as their Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.